This program's about the impossible. There's a good chance that you believe in the impossible. In 1967, Dr. George Wald won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Dr. Wald said, When it comes to the origin of life, there are two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago, but that led us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. This Nobel Prize-winning scientist rejected the science that God had to be the creator of life, the only possible explanation for you. Me, I'm a Christian because I don't believe in the impossible. Stay tuned and let's explore the universe as it really is. I'm Paul and this is CYKIAE. The richest, brightest, and the best women are getting married and staying married. They're not doing what the feminists are telling them. And that's making them and their families richer than the women who are following the advice of feminists and avoiding the so-called patriarchal trap of marriage. Is it possible that the feminists got it wrong? Who are the feminists and why should women believe, act on what they have to say? Louise Perry, in her book The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, says that many feminists consider the death of marriage to be a good thing. Opposition to marriage was a common theme in much of the writing of the second wave of feminism. Andrea Dworkin, Germaine Greer and Kate Millett all argued for the abolition of marriage. American sociologist Marlene Dixon in 1969 summarised the dominant feminist criticism of marriage at that time when she said the institution of marriage is the chief vehicle for the perpetuation of the oppression of women it is through the role of wife that the subjugation of women is maintained but louise perry says that it's no coincidence that most of the feminists who oppose marriage never had children on motherhood, liberal feminists and radical feminists have no answer to the question of how women are supposed to reconcile their search for their individual freedom with having children, which necessarily, dramatically takes away a lot of their freedom. If a woman chooses to have children, then surely, since those children had no say in whether they were brought into existence, the mother then has to prioritise their lives and not her own. Louise Perry says that if the most important thing in your life is your absolute freedom, which she proved is a total illusion in part eight of this series, then a woman has to reject motherhood. As a recent mother, she knows that motherhood's a state that she says limits a woman's freedom in almost every possible way, not only during pregnancy, but also for the rest of her life, since she will always have obligations 
to her children, and they will always have obligations to her. It's a connection that is only ever severed in the most dire circumstances. Neither liberal nor radical feminists can make their narrative fit women who have children, and they don't even try. That means that at least three-quarters of women are shut out of the feminist movement. It has nothing to offer them. Louise Perry says that motherhood's discussed in fewer than 3% of feminist papers, journal articles and textbooks on modern gender theory. It's no surprise because less than half of tenured female academics have children. Motherhood so dramatically and adversely impacts on the arguments for many feminist causes which are for women to behave in what Louise Perry calls the selfish male cat mode that motherhood has to be avoided so it won't destroy their utopian narrative. Louise Perry says, and no wonder since the logic of individualism collapses upon contact with motherhood. The pregnant woman's frame contains two people, neither of them truly autonomous. The unborn baby depends on the mother for survival and the mother cannot break their physical bond except through medical intervention that will result in the baby's death. Even after birth, the mother, baby dyad, remains a unit, tied together both emotionally and physically. And for many years following birth, the young child cannot be understood as an autonomous individual, because without the devoted care of at least one adult, death is a certainty. So what do women want? Individualism, which will really only be for the briefest time, and no children, or the loss of their freedom and children. Jordan Peterson, in his book 12 Rules for Life, says, A stable, loving relationship is highly desirable for men as well as women. For women, however, it is often what is most wanted. From 1997 to 2012, according to the Pew Research Center, the number of women aged 18 to 34 who said that a successful marriage is one of the most important things in life rose from 28 to 37 percent, an increase of more than 30 percent. The number of young men who said the same thing declined 15 percent over the same period from 35 to 29 percent. During that time, the proportion of married people over 18 continued to decline, down from three quarters in 1960 to half now. Finally, among never married adults aged 30 to 59, men are three times as likely as women to say that they do not ever want to marry. 27 versus 8 percent. He then looked at women lawyers working in the top law firms which struggle hopelessly to improve their diversity by having more senior women partners but it just doesn't happen for a reason that's good and all power to those women. Jordan Peterson asks the important question, who decided that a career is more important than love and family? Is working 80 hours a week at a high-end law firm truly worth the sacrifices required for that kind of success? And if it is worth it, why is it worth it? 
He says that a minority of people, mostly men, who score low on the trait of agreeableness, are hyper-competitive. They want to win at any cost. A minority will find the work intrinsically fascinating. But most aren't, and most won't, and money doesn't seem to improve people's lives once they have enough to avoid the bill collectors. Furthermore, most high-performing and high-earning females have high-performing and high-earning partners, and that matters more to women. The Pew data indicates that a husband with a desirable job is a high priority for almost 80% of never married but marriage-seeking women, but for less than 50% of men. He says that when most of the top-rate female lawyers reach their 30s, they leave their full-time positions. Only 15% of equity partners at the 200 biggest US law firms are women. He says that that figure hasn't changed much in the last 15 years, even though there are plenty of females below equity partners like associates and employed lawyers. For reasons of our own present-day cultural demands of diversity and equality, the big law firms want to appear to be good socially conscious equal opportunity employers, but they don't have a say in the women's choices, which are far more meaningful to them than a job. Jordan Peterson says, the women who leave want a job and a life that allows them some time. After law school and articling and the first few years of work, they develop other interests. This is common knowledge in the big firms, although it is not something that people are comfortable articulating in public, men and women alike. I recently watched a McGill University professor, female, lecture a room full of female law partners and near partners about how lack of child care facilities and male definitions of success impeded their career progress and caused women to leave. I knew most of the women in the room. We had talked at great length. I knew that they knew that none of this was at all the problem. They had nannies and they could afford them, and they had already outsourced all their domestic obligations and necessities. They understood as well, and perfectly well, that it was the market that defined success, not the men they worked with. If you are earning $650 an hour in Toronto as a top lawyer, and your client in Japan phones you at 4am on a Sunday, you answer now. You answer now even if you have just gone back to sleep after feeding the baby. You answer because some hyper-ambitious legal associate in New York would be happy to answer if you don't. And that's why the market defines the work. The vigorous push to increase the numbers of women getting degrees, including fields that many of them don't want to go into, like the STEM fields, science, engineering, etc., and moving into high-end occupations where men used to predominate is also having a negative impact on women and marriage. Jordan Peterson says that there's an increasingly short supply of university-educated men. This poses an increasingly major crisis for women who want to marry as well as date. One of the problems coming from this is the one identified by Louise Perry, who says... If I am, for instance, a young female student looking for a boyfriend at my 21st century university, and I don't want to have sex before marriage, 
then I will find my options limited in a way that they wouldn't have been 70 years ago, when sex before marriage is expected, and when almost all of the other women participating in my particular sexual market are willing to put out on a first or second date. Then not being willing to do the same becomes a competitive disadvantage. The abstinent young woman must either be tremendously attractive in order to outcompete her more permissive peers, or she must be happy to restrict her dating pool only to those men who are as unusual as she is. Being eccentric carries costs. Women looking for a husband prefer to marry someone at least on the same level as they are, or preferably higher up the ladder. Women want a partner of equal or greater status to them. This preference fits in perfectly with men, who are perfectly willing to marry across or down, as the pudata indicates. The male preference is for somewhat younger mates. If you're an atheist, you'd say, isn't that incredible? As a Christian, I say this as God's design working exactly as it should, because there are very good reasons for these preferences. The recent trend towards the destruction of the middle class has left wealthy women marrying wealthier men. Because of this, and because of the decline in high-paying manufacturing jobs for men, one out of six men of employable age is currently without work in the US. Marriage is now something in increasingly reserved for the rich. Jordan Peterson says, I can't help finding that amusing. In a blackly ironic manner, the oppressive patriarchal institution of marriage has now become a luxury. Why would the rich tyrannize themselves? Mary Ebbestad, in her book How the West Really Lost God, confirmed what Jordan Peterson said. She says that recent work by American scholars has added a new and perhaps unexpected detail to the decline in the marriage rate. It's fallen off most among the worse off, that is, the very people arguably most in need of the stability and other resources that marriage confers. She quotes Charles Murray in his book Coming Apart as saying that summarising the last 50 years of US statistics, over the last half century, marriage has become the fault line, dividing the American classes. She also quoted W. Bradford Wilcox in his book, When Marriage Disappears, The Retreat from Marriage in Middle America, as saying, In the last four decades, moderately educated Americans have seen their rates of divorce and non-marital childbearing rise, while their odds of wedded bliss have fallen to the point where their family lives look more and more like those of the least educated Americans, defined here as having no high school degree, who make up 12% of the adult population aged 25 to 60. By contrast, American trends among highly educated Americans have largely stabilized since the 1970s. She concludes that Considering the economic advantages of getting married and staying married, particularly the beneficial effects on family income, the fact that marriage appears more and more to be a luxury item enjoyed by the uppermost classes will surely only exacerbate the sense that social and economic inequality in America are on the rise. 
Louise Perry commented on the accidental demolition of marriage by well-intentioned legislators who pulled down gates, the purpose of which they didn't know. As G.K. Chesterton commented in Part 7 of this series, she says that if you read the parliamentary debates on what became the 1969 UK Divorce Reform Act, the key piece of liberalising legislation, the supporters of the bill didn't know what they were unleashing. They thought their reforms were an act of kindness towards the small number of people on the unhappy tale of the normal distribution, but that the rest of the curve would be left intact. Lord Stowe Hill, the Attorney General at the time, said, This bill does not open the door to easy divorce. That door is wide open now, under the existing law, and it would be hard to open it wider. And yet open it, it did. In the decade that followed the Divorce Reform Act, the number of divorces in the UK trebled, and then kept on rising. They peaked in the 1980s. Since then, there's been a slight decline in the divorce rate, not because of a genuine return to lasting marriages, but because marriage rates are at an historic low. In 1968, in the UK, 8% of children were born to parents who weren't married. In 2019, almost half of all children born were born to unmarried parents. As we've already covered in the series, and I'll be going into more detail in later programs. Today, there are just two marriages for every divorce in the UK each year. Louise Perry says that the institution of marriage, as it once was, is now more or less dead. She notes that it is even deader in the United States. There almost half of marriages end in divorce. She picks up on the theme that all of the previous authors have, that there's also a new and significant class divide. Before the 1970s, the vast majority of Americans got married and stayed married, regardless of family income. Now, of Americans in the top third income bracket, 64% are in an intact marriage, meaning they have only married once and are still in their first marriage. In contrast, only 24% of Americans in the lower third income brackets are in an intact marriage. A durable marriage is fast becoming a luxury of the upper classes. Louise Perry looks at what all of these divorces means. She says in many of these cases, the promise of happier alternative relationships remain unfulfilled, particularly for women who are more likely than men to remain permanently single following divorce. What's more, between a third and a half of divorced people in the UK report in surveys that they regret their decision to divorce. There's a lot of space between happy and irreparably unhappy. In the past, people in that zone stayed married. Now they often don't. Jordan Peterson answers the question about why women want an employed partner, preferably of higher status. Women become more vulnerable when they have children. They need someone competent to support them and their child when that becomes necessary. Why would a woman who decides to take responsibility for one or more infants want an adult to look after as well? 
The result is that an unemployed working man isn't what a woman who's going to have a child wants. And single motherhood's an undesirable alternative because it most likely will lead to terrible outcomes for her and her child. Louise Perry finishes her chapter on marriage with these comments. She says in a culture of high divorce rates, even those marriages that last risk being undermined, when marriage vows are no longer truly binding, couples seem to become less confident in their relationships. As in Australia, divorce after separation for 12 months is noticeably different to a marriage that lasted till death you do part. One study by the American economist Betsy Stevenson, for instance, found that a couple's investment of their finances into marriage declined in the wake of no-fault divorce laws. For example, newly wed couples in states that passed no-fault divorce were about 10% less likely to support their spouse through college or graduate school, and 6% less likely to have a child together. When marriage became impermanent, the institution as a whole was changed in many ways, and almost universally for the worse, Louise Perry said, I doubt very much that any of the well-meaning reformers of the 1960s ever envisaged such an outcome. Their intention had been a noble one, to offer a way out for people stuck in wretched marriages, and to lift the stigma from the then tiny minority, unfortunate enough to have been through divorce. But the problem of normal distribution interceded. There was always a threshold of dysfunction above which a marriage was considered beyond saving, and reformers intended to nudge it only a little. But as the marginal divorce rate made the next one more likely, and the one after that more likely still, that threshold went hurtling downwards at great speed. Louise Perry finishes her chapter saying this, I have just one piece of advice to offer in this chapter, and that you've probably already guessed what it will be. So here it is, get married. And do your best to stay married, particularly if you have children, and particularly if those children are still young. And if you do find yourself in the position of being a single mother, wait until your children are older, before you bring a stepfather into their home. These directives are harder to follow now, than they used to be because we no longer live in a culture that incentivizes perseverance in marriage. But it is still possible for individuals to go against the grain and insist on doing the harder, less fashionable thing. The critics of marriage are right to say that it has historically been used as a vehicle for the control of women by men, and they're right to point out that most marriages do not live up to a romantic ideal. They're right, too, that monogamous lifelong marriage is, in a sense, unnatural, in that it is not the human norm. The marriage system that prevailed in the West up until recently was not perfect, nor was it easy for most people to conform to, since it demanded high levels of tolerance and self-control. Where the critics go wrong is in arguing that there is any better system. There isn't. Jordan Peterson, in his book Beyond Order, takes a different, and I think correct, stance and viewpoint. 
He tells us why we should marry till death us do part, and have children if possible. Hope, of course, can drive us through the pain of negotiation, but hope is not enough. You need desperation as well, and that is part of the utility of till death us do part. You are stuck with each other, if you are serious, and if you are not serious, you are still a child. That is the point of the vow, the possibility of mutual salvation, or the closest you can manage here on earth. In a truly mature marriage, if your health holds out, you're there for the aforementioned sixty years, like Moses in the desert, searching for the promised land. And there is plenty of trouble that must be worked through, all of it, before peace might be established. So you grow up when you marry, and you aim for peace as if your soul depends upon it, and perhaps that is more serious than your life depending on it. And you made it work, or you suffer miserably, you will be tempted by avoidance, anger, and tears, or enticed to employ the trapdoor of divorce, so that you will not have to face what must be faced. But your failure will haunt you while you are enraged, weeping, or in the process of separating, as it will in the next relationship you stumble into with all your unsolved problems intact and your negotiating skills not improved a whit. You can keep the possibility of escape in the back of your mind. You can avoid the commitment of performance, but then you cannot achieve the transformation which might well demand everything you can possibly muster. The difficulty, however, that is implicit in the negotiation carries with it a tremendous promise, which is part of radically successful life. You could have a marriage that works. You could make it work. That is an achievement, a tangible, challenging, exceptional, and unlikely achievement. There are not many genuine achievements of that magnitude in life. A number as small as four is a reasonable estimate. Maybe if you strive for it, you have established a solid marriage. That is achievement one. Because of that, you have founded a solid and reliable, honest and playful home into which you could dare bring children. Then you can have kids, and with a solid marriage, that can work out for you. That is achievement two. Then you have brought upon yourself more of the responsibility that will demand the best from you. Then you will have new relationships of the highest quality, if you are fortunate and careful. Then you will have grandchildren, so that you are surrounded by new life when yours begins to slip away. In our culture, we live as if we're going to die at 30. But we do not. We live a very long time. But it is also all over in a flash. And it should be that you have accomplished what human beings accomplish when they live a full life. And marriage, and children, and grandchildren, and all the trouble and heartbreak that accompanies all of that is far more than half a life. Miss it at your great peril. In the next program, I'm going to look at what Katie Faust and Stacey Manning say about marriage in their book, Them Before Us, particularly focused on children of that marriage. Thanks for listening into this program, CYKIAE. 
If you missed it, you can catch up with it as a podcast on my CYKIAE, Spotify, Apple, Google and many other podcast sites. Just look at my program details on Cairns FM 89.1 for clickable links. I'm Paul. Don't miss my next program because you're going to love it. I want to thank my ghostwriter, without whom this program would definitely not have been possible, the Holy Spirit. Maybe you could catch up with me at my church, the Gafcon Northern Hope Anglican Church at the Cairns and District Junior Estedford Hall, 67 Greenslopes Street, Edge Hill, some Sunday at 9am. If you liked this program, you should definitely listen in to my other explosive program, The Danger Zone, also available as a podcast on those same sites. Search Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close brackets.